Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to Series 3, Episode 9 of From Page to Practice. Today we'll be taking a look at a book from the In Action series, the first we've covered on the podcast. That book is William and Leahy's Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action by Kate Jones. As is now standard for the podcast, Kate has kindly provided an introduction to the book and what she hopes readers will take away. So first, before we hear from the readers, let's hear from Kate. Hello, I'm Kate Jones and I'm the author of Willem and Lay's Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action. And I'm also a very big fan of this podcast, so I'm excited that this episode focuses on that book. So just to give listeners a little bit of context, this book is part of a series called the In Action series, which actually began with Tom Sherrington and his very popular book, Rose and Shine's Principles in Action. And the idea about the In Action books is that they take research or the work from others and then they write about what it looks like in the classroom. So the book that I was asked to write, and this book is unique compared to my other books because I've published six books in total with more on the way. This was the first book where I was asked to write something. So usually it was something that I decided to write about. So there was a lot of challenges with this book because um, the In Action series are also quite short. That's something that we do on purpose, that they are guides. Um, They're there for the busy teacher. We know about workload and also there's so many books out there as well. So that was challenging to try and condense information um, into shorter chapters. So those five chapters, one for each of the strategies in the book. So that was... um, a challenge for me, but something that I found really interesting and enjoyable. And I also contacted Dylan William um, to ask basically if I could do this book with his blessing. And, and he was very enthusiastic and he helped me a lot. He edited chapters, answered my questions, gave advice because my book is based on the work of Dylan William and his partner, Siobhan Leahy and their fantastic work with formative assessment. So where my book differs is I write about how I've applied their advice and their strategies in my classroom. And that's ideas I've come up with, um, the use of technology, and there's also case studies in the book from a wide range of teachers. Uh, We've got a great case study from Adam Vasco, who is a primary school teacher and early years specialist. So that was really good. We've got secondary teachers who write about it with exam classes. Um, Even though it's a short book, I feel that it includes a lot. And just to give a brief summary, 
of what the five strategies are for anyone who's perhaps not familiar with this. Um, the five strategies, um, they play a really important role in the planning and delivery and reflection when it comes to teaching and learning. So the first strategy is clarifying and sharing learning intentions and success criteria. And this was quite interesting because I think over the years, lesson objectives have been mutated and misunderstood and moved quite far away from what Dylan William and Siobhan Leahy were writing about. So that was a really good chapter to get stuck into. Um, and then once we've explained um, the learning intentions and share the success criteria, this links in nicely to chapter two, which is eliciting evidence of learning. And there's lots of ways that we can do this, but this is something that we are doing all the time in our classrooms, whether it's um, asking questions, doing tasks. And the key aspect of formative assessment is that it's ongoing and it's also to inform um, teacher planning. It's also to help the students understand what they know, what they can recall, where the gaps are in their knowledge. And formative assessment is different to summative. So summative assessment refers to an assessment perhaps at the end of a topic, end of a year, finalised by a grade, um, or actually like exams are coming back this year. So students will sit an exam or get a grade. It's very high stakes and that's summative. Then the other chapters, um, so we've had sharing learning intentions, success criteria, eliciting evidence of learning. The other chapters really involve um, the students as well. So we have feedback to move learners forward. And that was challenging because feedback <laughs> could easily be a whole book within itself. But there's a lot of research on feedback and some of it is conflicting. So it was really helpful for me to have these conversations with Dylan William. Then there's activating students as learning resources for one another, which I think in the pandemic and with online learning is something that students really missed. Working together and the focus here is collaboration, not competition. And then the final chapter, which I describe in the book as the holy grail of teaching and learning, is to activate students to become really independent, to take ownership, control, responsibility for their own learning. And once they do that, then they can just keep improving, keep progressing. There's also a brilliant forward in the book written by Professor John Hattie, because he's also done so much work with formative assessment, especially feedback. So he wrote quite a thorough forward, a few pages, and it's absolutely superb. I feel very grateful. Um, this book was also edited by Tom Sherrington. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I've had Dylan William help me write it, Tom Sherrington edit it, and John um, Hattie write the forward. So it felt very much like a team effort. And as I said, it, it's a huge credit to Dylan William and Siobhan Leahy for all of their years uh, of brilliant work. So if you read the book, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it useful and do check out other books in the In Action series. You're listening to From Page to Practice. 
Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Kate. It's great to hear that you enjoy From Page to Practice. It was really helpful to hear about the background to the In Action series, and I'm sure we'll cover more on the podcast. In fact, I think I have one on cognitive load on my shelf, so maybe that's a thought for a future episode. I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with my school colleagues, as a number of them have been reading as part of our book club. And now it's time to hear from the readers. First, from someone who's always tagging the podcast in recommendation tweets, which I really appreciate. It's Joe. Hello, my name is Joanna. I've been a secondary school teacher for about 25 years and I'm currently teaching at a school in Surrey. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at MadamTMFL. I read Kate Jones's book on the formative assessment strategies of William and Leahy because I'd originally read her book on her retrieval practice resource guide and I found that very accessible and very helpful. So I was keen to see how the book on formative assessment strategies would work out. And I wasn't disappointed. It's very accessible. It's got five clear chapters that deal with different strategies and you can dip in and dip out as and when you have the time. The chapter that struck me the most and I think gave me the most takeaways was chapter two, where she deals with engineering effective classroom discussions and activities that elicit evidence of learning. We are required to have data, we're required to have evidence, we're required to have marks, but in it's in the classroom where we really gauge where our students are at every moment and every day. And honing this skill and making it slicker, um, quicker and better is something that I'm, I'm keen to do. And I'm also looking for it to um, engineer a greater sense of achievement and progress that the students can feel too. The first thing that I took away from it was her suggestion of using a pyramid task. This essentially has closed questions along the bottom and a higher order question at the top and then varying degrees of open question in the middle. This is a really good idea. It's worked really well with Year 11 for my French students and it's one that I can see easily being uh, adapted across subject areas. Following on from that, the no hands up except to ask a question technique. Now, when the students put their hands up, I'm always trying to remember to say to them, no hands up except to ask a question and ask them if they've got a question. Sometimes they have, that's fine. We take the question, they move on. And other times they put their hands down and say, oh no, sorry, miss, I forgot. What I like about being explicit about the no hands up except to ask a question is that it encourages the students to ask questions. It shows them that we want their questions, but it also allows us to control a little bit who's giving the answers. It gives everybody an opportunity, which leads very nicely onto cold calling, which is another strategy that is mentioned in the book um, and something that I have really made an effort to use every lesson since having been reminded about it in having read the book Um, we have in my school class charts they have a random pupil button I ask my question first I then give them some wait time they have a think about it maybe they write something on a mini whiteboard to help get their thoughts in order then I click the random pupil button we make a, a kind of a big deal about it they know that it could be anybody and the random pupil is chosen, we ask the question, and then we we move on 
depending on what the answer was. Having the having adopted this strategy religiously over the last few weeks, I have learnt, I have heard more from every student, and it has led to some interesting whole class discussions. And I think also it's encouraged those students who might maybe feel that they're the only one that has a question or the only one that got something wrong. It's allowed us all to to share in in that learning experience. The next thing that's probably the thing that's made the biggest difference in my lessons in the weeks since I read this book is her section on using mini whiteboards as a tool for eliciting evidence of learning. I now use them in every lesson. I use them all the time. I use them to promote literacy. I've used them as a springboard for elaboration. I use them to allow the students to dual code answers, for example, if they're they've forgotten what words mean. If they have to write a phrase, for example, and they can't remember a word, they draw a picture to represent it. That way they're still communicating with me and they're able to show me very clearly. I can see very clearly where the gaps are. Linked to the using mini whiteboards is the show me technique, which is so simple, but it does um, prevent the situation I was having where the bright students or the quicker students would quickly write the answer down and hold their boards up and the other students that were possibly not quite as quick or maybe not quite as focused, they would see the boards go up and think, oh, well, the question's been answered. I don't need to do anything. The show me technique is everybody writes their answer. They turn their board face down on their desk. And then I say, show me. And they all hold their boards up. That way, they all know they're expected to write something. If they're not sure, they can put a question mark. But again, it includes everybody. I can do a quick scan. It's a very, very quick way of me assessing where we all are, where are the gaps, where are the misconceptions. I also use them for retrieval because, it's a, again, it's a very quick way of, of finding out where everybody is. Along with the mini whiteboard section, she also gives some very helpful advice on designing multiple choice questions. Um, and on the back of that, I have also used, I do use them more in my lessons. The other thing that I've taken away from this book is uh, comes from chapter three, which is the chapter dealing with feedback that helps move learners forward. It's called the um, Students as Detective Strategy. And very simply, if, for example, the students have had 10 questions to do, maybe they got three wrong. Instead of you ticking the right ones and crossing the wrong ones, you simply say there are three wrong so they have the confidence of knowing that they got some right. If you wanted to, you could say these two are right. And then they go back to the drawing board, they have a little think, and they have to work out for themselves which ones are wrong and why. It does require more time and effort from the student, but Kate Jones does remind us that, in fact, that's how it should be. It should require more work from the recipient than the donor. And in my experience over the last few weeks, this has led to much more resilience when the students are doing their corrections. They haven't just got the right and wrong answers, they've had to do a little bit of work themselves because they've had some guidance, they know they got some right, they have been much more prepared to try and correct the errors. All in all, I would thoroughly recommend this book. It's comprehensive, accessible, and has got practical ideas that you can take into your classroom straight away. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Bex and the From Page to Practice podcast for letting me share my thoughts. And thank you to Kate Jones for writing the book and helping me improve my practice. You're listening to From Page to Practice. 
join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thanks for your reflections, Joe. And next up, we are going to hear from Clara. We're using Kate Jones's book, Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action, um, to help plan our termly pedagogy group meetings. These meetings are where staff from all different subject areas in the school meet, learn about and discuss a specific aspect of pedagogy. And this book has been our Bible for each of our sessions so far this year. We've used the book to plan sessions on engineering effective tasks to elicit evidence of learning, a session on crafting really good learning intentions and a session on co-constructing success criteria. Once we've had our discussions and we've read the section in the book and we've looked at examples, staff then leave the group and have a go in their own classrooms or in their own subject areas, testing out and trying some of the strategies. They come back to the next meeting, feedback, what went well and things that they would uh, want to develop further. So in our session about tasks that elicit evidence of learning we talked a lot about the power of questioning um, and many staff went away and started to work on developing that area of their practice we also had staff who went away and tried using exit tickets Uh, staff went away and used the elaborate and extend for retrieval practice just to mix it up a bit from just five simple retrieval questions Um, and in elaborate and extend you give students a statement Henry VIII had six wives and you ask them to extend and elaborate on that statement and it gives you a really good sense of what they know and the things that they can retrieve and where any gaps or misconceptions might be. We took a bit of inspiration from the book um, to devise another task um, to elicit evidence of learning Um, and we called that task Think of a Question. So in this the teacher will ask every student in the group to come up with a question based on the learning that they've done in that lesson or that series of lessons. Every student has a question and every student must know the answer to that question. The teacher then chooses a student to start and then they ask their question. They then choose a student to answer their question. If the answer is correct, that correct student then asks their question. It's such a simple activity, but one that gives you, as the teacher, a really good sense of what students know and understand, not only in their answers to each other's questions, but in the questions that they ask each other. And obviously, you've got to do a little bit of training and quality questions and making sure that everybody gets a question. Um, But that was a task that we devised using kind of inspiration from that section of the book. In our session on learning intentions, we talked a lot as a group about what makes learning intentions different to objectives and to a WALT type, what are we learning today? Um, And it really felt liberating for lots of staff to think about, well, actually learning doesn't happen in 50 minute chunks and learning might happen over a series of 50 minute chunks. And actually that's okay because what matters is the learning not the fact that it happened in 50 minutes. Um, We also talked as a group about how learning intentions should be the same for every student and sort of moving away from
from that idea of some students will be able to do this, all of them will be able to do this, most of them will be able to do this. Our intention should be the same for all students. How they get there will look different and will need to be scaffolded in some cases, but our intention, what we want students to know, understand and be able to do, would be the same. And we also um, talked at length in the group about whether it was necessary for students to write down their learning intention. Students need to know it, absolutely. Do they need to write it down and does that actually help them know it? We decided no. In our session on success criteria, we used um, the section in uh, Kate's book, we watch the Austin's butterfly clip to think about co-constructing success criteria and using excellence as a way of facilitating that co-creation. Um, inspired by what we read in the book, we then looked at the work of James Dunn on successful writing and we had a go as a group at doing some boxed up success criteria where the task um, is identified first, then the intention that goes with the task and then you think about the success criteria and this is something that staff have gone away to try with groups of students but also try in their subject areas when they're collaboratively planning a task or planning an assessment. So our group have found um, this book on formative assessment really, really useful, full of practical ideas um, that staff have gone away and tried out and knowing that those ideas and those tasks and those questions are all based fundamentally on research about what actually works and to work with staff on techniques based in research has been really, really impactful and made um, those sessions all the more powerful. So thanks very much, Kate. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thanks for your reflections, Clara. It's great to hear how the book has formed part of your staff discussions. Next up, we're hearing from Rachel. She's been with us before back in September 2020, so I'm glad she's contributing once again to the podcast. Hi there, my name's Rachel Ball. I'm assistant principal at Co-op Academy Walkden, a large 11 to 16 school in Salford, um, and I tweet at Mrs Ball AP. So I was really excited about reading Kate's new book as I'm a massive fan of her work, um, especially around retrieval practice. And I also doubt there's a school in the country where Dylan William and Siobhan Leahy's work on formative assessment has not had some sort of impact. And what Kate does so well, as with all the inaction books actually, is to explore this work in detail, but showing how it can have a powerful impact on student learning. In each chapter, Kate explains the pitfalls, the misconceptions that can arise about aspects of formative assessment. And through a wide range of case studies from both primary and secondary schools, she gives practical examples for embedding the five key strategies. Um, I really love the way that each chapter explains the research and it separates the myths from the facts about what really works and shows what this could look like in the classroom. There's loads of helpful advice and expert guidance interwoven throughout and it covers subjects like marking and feedback, group work, learning objectives and metacognition. There was so much for me to take away from this book. Um, a lot of it was like a real confirmation that what I've been developing in the school as in my role as teaching and learning lead was right. 
and that our priorities as a school are spot on. So there's a lot of reassurance. Um, but there were definitely sections that were a bit of a challenge about how we can still do better and how we can ensure that our teaching is even more effective based on what the research is telling us about how to help our students progress. So one key area which we are looking to develop in the academy at the moment, we're doing a lot of work around, is the use of questioning and particularly cold call in lessons. Um, early in the year, I led a training session where I used one of Dylan Williams' videos um, with staff where he discusses the no hands up except to ask a question technique um, as part of formative assessment. And he really starkly says, if you're not doing that, if you're not emphasising that in your own classroom, your results are going to be worse than they would be otherwise. And we just found that as a staff body so hard hitting. We know that a failure of hands up is that if you want to find out what students know, Dylan Williams says, it makes little sense to select a respondent from the volunteers because generally students raise their hands only when they're confident they've got the correct answer. So this strategy is explored in lots of detail in chapter two of Kate's book with some really helpful advice that I've been able to share with staff in subsequent sessions and also through our instructional coaching programme, which we've launched. A lot of this is about the culture needed for cold core to be effective. Um, so it talks in the chapter about having a warm approach, not trying to catch students out, using students' names and including wait time. And so these are all techniques that we've been promoting. We've also been doing lots of work with mini whiteboards as an academy, and we now have these based in every classroom. Kate's section on this in the same chapter gives some really nice, easy-to-use routines around their, around their use, which, again, I've been able to share with staff to enable them to be used most effectively. Um, show me, for example, where students hold up their boards at the same time. And um, we talked a lot about how they can be used to tackle misconceptions, which she also explores. Um, it's really great to walk into a science lesson recently, for example, where this exact method was being used um, with year 10. Um, there was a true or false mini whiteboard quiz, followed by probing questioning to check understanding of some really key concepts and where the misconceptions were. Chapter three of Kate's book covers the strategy of providing feedback that moves learners forward. Again, as an academy, we've been working a lot on feedback over the last three years or so. Um, three years ago, we introduced a feedback rather than marking policy and made it a policy where there was no expectation for written feedback. Um, and obviously, we've done lots of work, but we're always seeking to refine and to develop the work on feedback that we do. One part of the chapter which Kate has written, which we took a lot away from, was the section on preparation for misconceptions and mistakes. And because of this, we've now extended our work around hinge questions. Kate's writing really made me think about how I myself could be also making use of this in all parts of my practice. So as well as questioning in the classroom generally, um, I could be using hinge questions and exploring misconceptions in retrieval practice and in homework as well. And this has led me to introduce retrieval-based Google quizzes for all homeworks this year for my GCSE classes, um, taking a lot of tips from the second chapter as well about multiple choice questions. Um, so I now make a concerted effort to focus on misconceptions as part of these quizzes. For example, my year 11s who are currently studying health and the people topic in history, um, I know that a really common misconception is that public health everywhere in medieval England was poor. 
by posing this kind of statement to the class, I can then check their understanding um, and make sure they recognise that, for example, in medieval monasteries, public health was actually very good. Um, it was water filtering, there were lavatoriums, um, and public health was therefore much better than in the towns. And so to say it was poor everywhere would be a misconception. Um, so I've been using statements like this also as part of homework quizzing and asking for students' understanding, which then enables me to give effective feedback in the following lesson. A second idea I really liked from this chapter was around making feedback into detective work. So we've embedded routines of whole class feedback. Each subject in our academy has their own, own feedback policy and whole class feedback is an integral part of that. But what we have said is that doesn't mean that teachers can't ever highlight or write on students' work where it's applicable. So one way that I've been applying Kate's work in my own practice is to highlight sections of students' work which are particularly good and then having students be the detectives in the first part of the lesson to try and work out what they did well in that section. Um, and as a class, then discussing it and applying the work to success criteria. And then students can also improve their work as part of the feedback pro process. Um, we'll often combine this with looking at model answers under the visualizer, looking at student answers from their work under the visualizer as a class um, and discussing um, along with the success criteria why this was good. There are loads of areas from, of learning that I took away from Kate's book, but I hope these provide a starting point and help persuade you that the book is really worth reading. Um, I just thought it was excellent and it would be really helpful for any teacher or school leader who was looking to improve their practice and ensure that their students make excellent progress. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thanks, Rachel. Just two more reader contributions left now, and the next one is from Becky. Hi, my name's Becky Powell. I work at Newman College up in Oldham, and my Twitter handle is at Becca at Tiffany's. At our school, I run an edgy book club as part of our teaching and learning team, which is how I found this book, Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action. Our current topic has been assessment and metacognition, so this re book really spoke to us. I love this series of books, the In Action series. They're really user-friendly and practical. At our college, we all have a copy of Rosenstein's Principle in Action from the In Action series. It's kind of a staple of our teaching and learning framework. They've got really useful summaries at the end of each chapter, graphics to support you, and case studies which run alongside. And there are links to the research if you want a bit more of a deeper insight. Also, it's just under 100 pages, so you can read it in about an hour and dip back in it if you want to. Lots of our conversations at Edgy Book Club over the last couple of weeks have been around self and peer assessment and improving it. So chapter four and chapter five of this book really complemented the conversations that we've been having. So chapter four was activating students as learning resources for one another, so peer assessment as part of the Where the Learner Is Now strand. We'd been talking about how when we do peer assessment, you always get some reluctance from some students. They don't want to share their work or feel like they might be judged for it. But this book really emphasised the idea that peer assessment should be a collaboration rather than a competition. And it gave some really useful tools for helping with this. 
One method they had was providing feedback as kind, specific and helpful. This is something that I've tried before, um, but in this book they broke it down into a really easy, helpful way. Um, They had a little graphic for having sentence starters to structure feedback with examples of sentence starters that you might use. So, for example, for something kind, you might put, I really like how you used this to do this. Or for something specific, an idea that needs developing is this because. Or if you want something helpful, try changing this as it will help you to do this. I think this could be really helpful for getting the most out of peer assessment. It definitely will avoid the kind of improve your punctuation or write more that you sometimes get. And it's something I've been trying to train my students to do. Additionally, they talked about review cycles, especially doing reviews perhaps after like the first paragraph or first couple of sentences, immediately doing some peer assessment. So then they can put that cycle into action straight away. Doing something like this would avoid peer assessment being like a bolt-on or a rushed activity at the end of a piece of independent writing. Chapter 5 linked more with the metacognitive discussions that we've been having. It was activating students as owners of their own learning. And I think this is something that we found quite difficult to do. So having this book made it really easy to understand. They had four key tips for both motivation and metacognition. The first one being time. We all have very busy and hectic curriculums that we all need to get through, but actually building into our schemes of work or schemes of learning, time to reflect and time to go back, time to explicitly teach metacognitive skills so it doesn't become just a bolt-on at the end of every lesson. The second was modelling self-regulated learning, reflection and assessment. This really stood out to me. Um, I do lots of I, we, you in deliberate practice to build to independence, but I don't necessarily do so much I, we, you of feedback and showing them how to regulate learning. It's It's a skill that I really want to build. Third was providing examples of improvements after feedback so students can see how feedback actually does improve their work. I can see this helping to improve the motivation of students during feedback activities. The final one was providing feedback on their actual self-assessment so students understand and know and are confident in what they're doing and will be able to do so without the teacher either inside or outside the classroom. A lot of the things in the book are things that we do regularly as part of our teaching practice but they really help refine those skills and share a solid evidence base behind them. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Becky. It's great to hear how you've been using this book in your practice. Finally, we're going to hear from Gaurav. Hello to all the listeners listening to this podcast today. Um, I'm Gaurav Dubey, um, and I'm the head of English at King Edward VI Hansworth Grammar School for Boys in Birmingham and as well as that I'm um, the subject network lead for English for the King Edward Foundation um, and I'm also an evidence lead in education with them um, St Matthew's Research School. Um, so I have a lot of sort of titles and a lot of things that I do um, and when I was asked to um, do this particular discussion 
for From Page to Practice on Kate Jones's five formative assessment strategies, um, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, because if you're somebody like me who has so many different things that you need to do in so many different hats, you need to be able to put in strategies in place in your schools that are going to make a huge impact. And certainly I know in my network of schools, formative assessment is certainly something that has a huge impact with our students um, and really helps to improve outcomes, but also a huge um, impact with our staff because it really helps to reduce um, and manage workload, which in the current climate that we're in in education is um, an absolute must. Um, I got this book when it first came out. I, I managed to get it within the first couple of days of it of it being released. Um, and I'm somebody who sort of prides myself on thinking I know everything about formative assessment. I've been using formative assessment, um, or I've been, or I've certainly known about it since I started training um, as a teacher um, back in um, the early two thousands. Um, and it certainly is something that has become part of, of my practice. But something that I've been very, very aware of is like with any kind of strategy in education, you can end up using it and it ends up perhaps not having the impact that you wanted it to have because it mutates into something that it shouldn't be um, and perhaps doesn't have the the uh, desired effect that you want it to have with your students. So this particular book came at a time when... Um, I really was thinking about marking and feedback and really being able to use feedback to have the best sort of outcomes with my students. And the first thing that I want to say is that when you first open the book, there are some things written in there that we do day in and day out. Um, and it's certainly something that, um, you know, f for some of the things for me, some of the strategies were so simple yet so effective um, and that gave me some kind of reassurance in, in knowing that I've been using formative assessment in, in the way that it ought to have been done. But there were other things within that book that really challenged my thinking. Um, and when I say it challenged my thinking, it, it made me challenge the way in which I use formative assessment. Um, often, um, I end up using formative assessment as a strategy because it looks good. It might look good in an observation. It might look good and break up the lesson um, to keep that kind of pace going. Um, but perhaps what I don't didn't always consider was whether or not actually I was using it in a way that was most effective for my students. Um, and this book really, the way Kate Jones sort of puts it together, where she sort of looks at the right sort of key key ideas and addresses some of the key issues and misconceptions around formative assessment really enabled me to think about the strategies that I was using and, and to ensure that formative assessment wasn't just being used for formative assessment's sake, but was really having the impact that we um, wanted it to have. So in my current school, um, where I work as um, a head of English, um, and you can find us on Twitter at, at um, English, um, underscore HGS, all in lowercase. Um, we've been using a strategy for a number of years now where formative assessment helps to feed into what we call a, a mid-unit assessment. And a mid-unit assessment is something actually that we mark in more detail than our summative assessments. Um, but we found that the workload was was huge. And actually the, the 
impact that it was having wasn't perhaps what we wanted it to be um, because the process from getting from marking to students getting that feedback was taking a little bit too long and also it, it linked very well with ideas related to metacognition um, Jennifer Webb's work and 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 the like that we were probably doing too much too many of the corrections for the students and so the book came in incredibly handy. Um, and just recently with, with Year 10, one of the strategies that we've put in place in practice is getting the stu- is actually looking at key aspects of their work and putting a yellow box around it. One of the um, strategies that many teachers have used, but here really sort of crystallised um, in the book of how it can be used effectively. Um, and we marked that particular aspect in detail um, and students were then encouraged to look at those errors that were, were in the yellow box in the rest of their paragraph. Um, and they were expected to make um, improvements to the work and, and to really look at their own errors um, and to really self-assess, self-evaluate and really think about how they were going to improve their work in the future. And we found this to be incredibly effective. Um, particularly very, very recently with our Year 10 students. And we have a bunch of Year 10 students, as you can imagine, who are incredibly bright, but they they are also incredibly lazy. Um, And they're happy for the teacher to do the work for them. But actually, we're, we're having no impact when we do the work for them and when we spot every single error for them. And so it's really about them taking ownership and making improvements to their own work. And, um, and their sort of Twitter handle I aforementioned, you can see some of the examples of, of the work that um, students have done and the improvements that they've made as a result of what was a very simple strategy that came from, from Kate Jones. And what was good about that simple strategy is that it was crystallised, its purpose was so beautifully crystallised within the book, um, amongst many, many sort of other strategies that we have used. But we found that one to be particularly effective um, particularly when we use a visualizer to to show students the um, improvements that they have made. And so really, I just want to say um, a big thank you to Kate Jones for taking the opportunity to write this book. Um, I know she does a million and one of the things, but also for the people who produce this podcast, um, you know, really talking about how we don't just read you know, CPD books, but really how we put those things into practice. And um, if anyone wants to carry on this discussion further, you can find me on Twitter at Gaurav Dubay 3. That's um, lowercase g-a-u-r-a-v-d-u-b-a-y and the number three. Um, And you can see some of the ways in which we've used some of the strategies from this book um, in practice um, in the classroom listening to from page to practice join the conversation on twitter using hashtag page practice podcast thank you to all of today's readers and of course you for listening the next episode in two weeks time will be on the latest chartered college impact journal so please do get in touch if you've read it and can reflect on an article or two As per usual, I really appreciate people rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and other platforms as it helps spread the podcast to more people. I also am very grateful to those who make sure I'm able to keep buying books by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash fptppod. Thanks and until next time, bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article 
or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.